Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Native communities in southeastern Canada and northern New York State warred amongst themselves long before the arrival of Europeans on the continent. By the early 17th century, however, new alliances were formed and the Iroquois became mortal enemies of the French. With the early morning light, Samuel de Champlain, an adventurous Frenchman, and the Hurons and Algonquins advanced, following the ever-widening stream, in whose midst islands, leagues, and extent now appeared. Beyond came broad channels and extended reaches of widening waters, and soon the delighted explorer found that the river had ended, and that the canoes were moving over the broad bosom of that great lake of which the Indians had told him, and which has ever since borne his name. It was a charming scene which thus first met the eyes of man. Far in front spread the inland sea. On either side, distant forests, clad in the fresh leafage of June, marked the borders of the lake. Far away, over their leafy tops, appeared lofty heights. On the left of the green mountains lifted their forest-clad ridges, with patches of snow still whitening their tops. On the right rose the clustering hills of the Adirondacks, then the hunting-grounds of the Iroquois, and destined to remain the game preserves of the whites long after the axe and plough had subdued all the remainder of that forest-clad domain. They had reached a region destined to play a prominent part in the coming history of America. The Indians told their interested auditors of another lake, thickly studded with islands, beyond that on which they now were, and still beyond a rocky portage over which they hoped to carry their canoes, and a great river which flowed far down to the mighty waters of the sea. If they met not the foe sooner, they would press onward to this stream, and there perhaps surprise some town of the Mohawks, whose settlements approached its banks. This same liquid route in later days was to be traversed by warlike hosts both in the French and Indian and the Revolutionary Wars, and to be signalized by the capture of Burgoyne and his invading host, one of the most vital events in the American struggle for liberty. The present expedition was not to go so far. Hostile bands were to be met before they left the sheet of water over which their canoes now glided. Onward they went, the route becoming hourly more dangerous. At length they changed their mode of progress, resting in the depths of the forest all day long, taking to the waters at twilight, and paddling cautiously onward, till the crimsoning of the eastern sky told them that day was near at hand. Then the canoes were drawn up in sheltered coves, and the warriors, chatting, smoking, and sleeping, spent on the leafy lake borders the slow-moving hours of the day. The journey was a long one. It was the twenty-ninth of July when they reached a point far down the lake, near the present site of Crown Point. They had paddled all night. They hid here all day. Champlain fell asleep on a heap of spruce boughs, and in his slumber dreamed that he had seen the Iroquois drowning in the lake, and that when he tried to rescue them he had been told by his Algonquin friends to leave them alone, as they were not worth the trouble of saving. The Indians believed in the power of dreams. They had beset Champlain daily to learn if he had had any visions. When now he told them his dream, they were filled with joy. Victory had spoken into his slumbering ear. With gladness they re-embarked when night came on, and continued their course down the lake. They had not far to go. At ten o'clock, through the shadows of the night, they beheld a number of dark objects on the lake before them. It was a fleet of Iroquois canoes, heavier and slower craft than those of the Algonquins, for they were made of oak or elm bark, instead of the light paper birch used by the latter. Each party saw the other, and recognized that they were in the presence of foes. 
War cries sounded over the shadowy waters. The Iroquois, who preferred to do their fighting on land and who were nearer the shore, hastened to the beach and began at once to build a barricade of logs, filling the air of the night with yells of defiance as they worked away like beavers. The Allies, meanwhile, remained on the lake, their canoes lashed together with poles, dancing with a vigor that imperiled their frail barks, and answering the taunts and menaces of their foes with equally vociferous abuse. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. It was agreed that the battle should be deferred till daybreak. As day approached, Champlain and his two followers armed themselves, their armor consisting of cuirass or breastplate, steel coverings for the thighs, and a plumed helmet for the head. By the side of the leader hung his sword, and in his hand was his arquebus, which he had loaded with four balls. The natives of these woods were now first to learn the destructive power of that weapon, for which, in the years to come, they would themselves discard the antiquated bow. The Iroquois much outnumbered their foes. There were some two hundred of them in all, tall, powerful men, the boldest warriors of America whose steady march excited Champlain's admiration as he saw them filing from their barricade and advancing through the woods. As for himself and his two companions, they had remained concealed in the canoes, and not even when a landing was made did the Iroquois behold the strangely clad allies of their hereditary enemies. Not until they stood face to face ready for the battle cry did the Algonquin ranks open and the white men advance before the astonished gaze of the Iroquois. Never before had they set eyes on such an apparition, and they stood in mute wonder, while Champlain raised his arquebuse, took aim at a chief, and fired. The chief fell dead. A warrior by his side fell wounded in the bushes. As the report rang through the air, a frightful yell came from the allies, and in an instant their arrows were whizzing thickly through the ranks of their foes. For a moment the Iroquois stood their ground and returned arrow for arrow. But when from the two flanks of their adversaries came new reports, and other warriors bit the dust, their courage gave way to panic terror, and they turned and fled in wild haste through the forest, swiftly pursued by the triumphant Algonquins. Several of the Iroquois were killed, a number were captured. At night the victors camped in triumph on the field of battle, torturing one of their captives, till Champlain begged to put him out of pain and sent a bullet through his heart. Thus ended the first battle between whites and Indians on the soil of the northern United States, in a victory for which the French were to pay dearly in future days, at the hands of their now vanquished foes. With the dawn of the next day the victors began their retreat. A few days of rapid paddling brought them to the Richelieu. Here they separated, the Hurons and Algonquins returning to their homes by way of the Ottawa, the Montagniers, who dwell in the vicinity of Quebec, accompanying Champlain to his new-built city. The Iroquois, however, were not the men to be quelled by a single defeat. 
In June of the ensuing year, a war party of them advanced to the mouth of the Richelieu, and a second fierce battle took place. As another vivid example of the character of Indian warfare, the story of this conflict may be added to that already given. On an island in the St. Lawrence, near the mouth of the Richelieu, was gathered a horde of Montagne Indians, Champlain, and others of the whites being with them. A war party of Algonquins was expected, and busy preparations were being made for feast and dance, in order that they might be received with due honor. In the midst of this festal activity an event occurred that suddenly changed thoughts of peace to those of war. At a distance on the stream appeared a single canoe, approaching as rapidly as strong arms could drive it through the water. On coming near, its inmates called out loudly that the Algonquins were in the forest, engaged in battle with a hundred Iroquois, who, outnumbered, were fighting from behind a barricade of trees which they had hastily erected. In an instant the air was filled with deafening cries. Tidings of battles were to the Indians like a fresh scent to hounds of the chase. The Montagnais flew to their canoes and paddled with frantic haste to the opposite shore, loudly calling on Champlain and his fellow whites to follow. They obeyed, crossing the stream in canoes. As the shore was reached, the warriors flung down their paddles, snatched up their weapons, and darted into the woods with such speed that the Frenchmen found it impossible to keep them in sight. It was a hot and oppressive day. The air was filled with mosquitoes so thick, says Champlain, that we could hardly draw breath, and it was wonderful how cruelly they persecuted us. Their route lay through swampy soil, where the water at places stood knee-deep, over fallen logs, wet and slimy, and under entangling vines. Their heavy armor added to their discomfort. The air was close and heavy. Altogether it was a progress fit to make one sicken of warfare in the wilderness. After struggling onward till they were almost in despair, they saw two Indians in the distance, and by vigorous shouts secured their aid as guides to the field of battle. An instinct seemed to guide the Indians through that dense and tangled forest. In a short time they led the laboring whites to a point where the woodland grew thinner, and within hearing of the wild war-whoops of the combatants. Soon they emerged into a partial clearing, which had been made by the axes of the Iroquois, in preparing their breastwork of defense. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. If you enjoy what we do, Try supporting us in any way that you can. Thanks. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it. And customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 
30605 and we'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605.